So this is, uh, this is Genesis 13. We're going to start in verse 5. And this is the word of the Lord to you because you're his people and because he loves you. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we're we're thankful that your word is so true to our lives, and uh, that you operate on us. You open us up with your word. Uh, It pierces uh, down to the deepest parts of who we are, and we ask that your word would do that to us today, that uh, not only that you would open us, but that you would also speak your grace into the deepest parts of who we are. And we, uh, Lord, we pray for the one who teaches, for Lord, you know that my sins are many, and we pray that you would forgive them, and that you would speak the gospel to your people, and that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, and that you would give us new life as we receive with faith the words that you speak to us. And so we come to your word in faith in our Lord Jesus now. Give us your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, today, we're continuing our study of the life of Abraham. Um, I know the pastor says Abram. His name later is changed to Abraham, so I'm going to refer to him as Abraham. Um, And so far, what we've seen in the last couple weeks that we've been in Genesis is that Abraham's life is a bit of a roller coaster. You know, the, uh, the first week, chapter 12, we, we saw that God told him to leave his homeland and go to the promised land, and Abraham's very heroic, and he trusts God, and he does it. And, but before the, uh, the chapter's even over, we're still in chapter 12, a famine comes, and all of a sudden, uh, Abraham leaves, and he goes down to Egypt, and he uh, sells his wife <laughs> into the harem of the pagan pharaoh king. So he's very up, he's very down, and what that shows us, I'll say, one of the things we're going to see throughout the life of 
Abraham is that he's a mixture. Abraham's a mixture. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, this is something that Shannon and I are, are constantly reminding one another is that people are a mixture. You know, especially if someone's a Christian, for example, you know, a Christian is someone who's really a miserable sinner who has been redeemed by Jesus. And so, you know, as, as, uh, as Trev said to me recently, he says, people are a mixture of sin and glory. And, you know, we, we often don't think of people that way, right? We think of people as, uh, as we either kind of demonize them and say, oh, they're all bad, or we kind of idolize people and say they're all good and they're wonderful and they're perfect. But people are a mixture, and we see that with Abraham. And it's a, that's, you know, a key thing for us in relating to people is understanding that people are a mixture, and uh, this is what we see with Abraham, because last week, um, last week Abraham was, uh, uh, you know, he's down in Egypt, he's selling his wife into, into the harem, he's basically blind to who his wife is, he's blind to her well-being, and then we come to this passage, and they're in the promised land, and Abraham and Lot, they both have all these herdsmen, they have all these cattle, and there's strife between them, you know, they're having... Uh, you know, they're fighting with each other. And we see a kind of transformation in Abraham. Last week, he's a failure. This week, we see a transformation in him. Um, and we see this in, uh, in verse 8, that Abraham kind of clothed with wisdom, and he's trusting God. Look at verse 8. Then Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. You see that, the gentleness, the kindness there. Let there be no strife between you, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Actually, that literally in Hebrew, it says we are brothers. He's telling him, don't forget we're brothers. Let's work this out. He's thinking about the well-being of Lot, and he goes on to say, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right hand. If uh, If you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. Abraham's a mixture. Here we see, last week he's blind to other people's well-being, and here he's being quite generous, and he's trusting God and saying, you take the pick, and I'm sure it's going to be God's will. And, uh, and the question I want to ask is, um, why are we as people sometimes in a, unimaginably sinful? Self, selfish, self-righteous, uh, condemning, angry, and yet sometimes we're wise like Jesus, gentle, loving. What, is, what are these two sides to us? And I think that uh, in this passage, we see kind of a picture in Lot and in Abraham, a picture of, of these two qualities who we are, and I think we learn something from each of them. And the first thing is that I think that we learn from Lot that, uh, that our biggest problem as humans is that um, we have a heart of idolatry. We have a heart of idolatry. Our tendency... Is to, uh, is to make anything and everything into a God, into something that we worship, something that we devote our life to that's not God, and that we look to to save us. So the first thing that we learn is that we have a heart of idolatry. But second, we learn from Abraham that the cure to a heart of idolatry is a heart of wonder. And I want to explore those two things, a heart of idolatry and a heart of wonder, uh, together as we look at this passage this morning. So first, uh, what is a heart of idolatry? Spilling on myself here. Um, okay, now, uh, what happens, part of idolatry, what happens in this passage is that after Abraham offers the choice of land to Lot, so he says to Lot, you can have, you know, take your pick of the land, what do you want to pick? And this is what it says in verse 10, and, and Lot lifted up his eyes 
and saw the Jordan River Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Now, this is a very interesting little line because uh, the promised land that they're in is bordered by the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan, Mediterranean Sea on the west and the Jordan River on the right. There's a lot of saying, you know, I'm going to take the kind of edge of the promised land. I'm, and he might even be going on the other side of the Jordan, into, outside of the promised land. And, um, and so he's moving himself away from the promises of God. But there's something very interesting. Robert Alter, who's a, one of the top Hebrew scholars in the world, he's down at, uh, at Berkeley or he's been down at Berkeley, he comments on this passage that when it says that Abraham, uh, or that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord, what Moses, the writer, is doing is he's giving us a little snapshot of Lot's heart. And that the way Lot's heart saw this piece of land was as the Garden of the Lord. And uh, if, you know, the Garden of the Lord is obviously referring to the, the Garden of Eden, which is this kind of place where it's, there's completeness, there's wholeness, there's health, life is good, and we're, you know, there's this spiritual transcendence. God is walking in the presence of the garden. It's, it, the Garden of Eden was a temple. And so when Lot is sitting here making his choice and he looks at this piece of land, what that piece of land means to him is it has this religious significance to it. That piece of land is going to make me whole. That piece of land will give me what God can give me. And, uh, and that's essentially, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is taking a good thing, a piece of land, a blessing, and investing in it only what God can give us. And believing that only that can uh, give us, what, only that can save us, only that can make us whole, only that can make our, our life whole. And, uh, you know, the Bible uh, says that all of our spiritual problems find their root in idolatry, in taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. And, uh, you know, whenever you give your heart to an idol, it always has a destructive trail that leads after. You can see in this passage, there's a number of clues that Lot is making a bad decision. You know, it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know the book of Genesis, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, things don't go well for them uh, later in Genesis. Um, it also says that, uh, that Lot uh, departed from Abraham. Abraham is the, the blessing bearer. And who has God's promises. And Lot's leaving him. And, uh, and it says that he went to the east. You know, after Adam and after Cain, after they sinned, where did they go? They went to the east. And the, the men at Babel, they, they sojourned in the east. So there's all these clues that, uh, that Lot is making a bad decision. And, uh, and that's always the character of idolatry. And I think that one of the most important things for growing in the spiritual life is for, for us to grow in our Christian life is for us to, to see that how much like Lot we are. That we see certain things and we see them like they're the garden of the Lord. We see that if I had that, um, life would be whole. Life would be complete. I would, um, I would have, you know, meaning in my life, purpose in my life. I would know, uh, you know, know what I'm doing with my life. And... Um, and that our hearts are constantly uh, making idols. Now, um, what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes for us to, to think through how do we identify idols in our life, things like this that we begin to think are like the garden of the Lord, that can give us that kind of wholeness and completeness, to, that, that we think make those kind of promises to us. And I just want to give you a few ways of testing yourself, diagnostics for finding out uh, the, uh, you know, where idolatry is in our life. I get some of this from Tim Keller's book uh, on idolatry. 
Um, well, I think one of the most powerful ways is to look at the things that we daydream about. You know, you see that Abraham, uh, Lot is kind of looking at the land, and he's kind of looking, you know, you picture him up on a mountain, he's kind of looking it over, and he's kind of picturing himself in there, filling out, getting lots of cattle, and he's seeing what's happening. He's kind of fantasizing about himself in his land. And, you know, I, I, I've shared with some of you that uh, when I was a teenager, I, uh, you know, I was dropped out of school, and I was on drugs, and I left home, and I was very problem 15-year-old. And uh, my parents, actually, they had me picked up in the middle of the night, and I was thrown in a car for 20 hours to Utah, and then I was put on a plane for Western Samoa, which is a little island down in the South Pacific. And I went to a boys' rehab kind of uh, um, behavioral modification program where I spent a year and a half when I was 16 in Western Samoa. And, uh, and when I went there, you know, you come in, we flew in on this little plane and uh, landed on this grass field, and we come into a little shack, which is the airport, and we drove up in this van up into the jungle, and we came to this uh, compound, you might call it, I don't know, it had uh, barbed wire fences around, and it had all these ten huts around a mud pit, and I just see all these gangsters and, you know, dropout kids marching in circles and doing push-ups, and I'm saying, what am I, where am I? And there was up in this, this camp, there was this one large building up in the corner, which had no windows, and that was called the dungeon. And uh, this is a true story. I'm not, tell, I'm not lying. Uh, it was called the dungeon. And what, so, you know, I come to this camp, and I'm doing push-ups, and, I'm, I'm, uh, and I go into the, the uh, I use the restroom. I come out, and I forgot to tuck in my shirt. And so Simone guy says, you didn't tuck in your shirt. Go to the dungeon. So I, I, <laughs> I really spent the next eight days <laughs> in the dungeon. And I'll tell you what the dungeon was. The dungeon was, it was a room about this size, the size of the sanctuary, and um, where rows of kids are sitting on the floor, cross-legged, all day, um, listening to tapes about famous people. And from eight in the morning to eight at night, no food. And, uh, and it was, this was the consequence if you broke a rule. And here I am. I'm this stoner dropout kid who's just been ripped out of my house, ripped out of Bellevue, Washington. I lived, grew up in Bellevue, and I'm sitting in a jungle in a dungeon, sitting on the ground all day long for eight straight days. And I had, how am I going to cope with that? And I'll tell you, daydreaming <laughs> was my mechanism. And I really, I, I'll tell you what I began dreaming, daydreaming about was football. I, I played football as a quarterback, and, um, and I spent all the day thinking about myself, throwing passes, the lights, and, you know, going on Friday night and the fans. And what I was doing was I was finding what's going to rescue me? What is the thing that's going to protect me? What is the thing that I'm going to rest in that I'm going to have some sense of I'm someone in the midst of this crisis I'm in? And the thing I was going to was football. And I spent my whole time, it was kind of a comfort to me. You might say, you know, okay, what, what's wrong with that? That seems like, I don't, I don't know how else you deal with that. But I'll tell you one thing, is that if, if I had kept doing that from the rest of my year and a half in Samoa, said football is who I am, you know, it may have given me some comfort. It may have made me feel good at some times, but I guarantee you it wouldn't have changed my life. It would have said nothing about how to love people. It would have given me uh, no strength uh, to deal with depression or other areas of my life. It was an immediate comfort. And what you can do is we do that when we're in crisis and things are happening. We begin to fantasize about a life that we want, the life that God would give us. And for me, that was football. 
And that is a clue. Where does your mind go when you have some free time or when you're trying to escape? When you, what are the things you're kind of daydreaming and fantasizing about? Those are likely the things that are the garden of the Lord for you. The things that you're looking to, that that will be my salvation. That will be what only God can be for me. And what this text is saying, those things will always fail you. you are, if, if we invest in something besides God, that kind of ultimacy... It can't give us that. It never was meant to give us that. Only God can give us that. It will always fail us. So daydreaming. That's the kind of first diagnostic. What are the things you daydream about? Second, I'm going I'm to give a few more. I'll spend a little less time on other things that you can... What are the idols in our life? Money. What do you spend your money on? Uh, you know, Jesus says, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here we have Lot, actually, he's looking at this land, the, the Garden of the Lord, or, or this, uh, the Jordan River Valley. He's going to invest... Tremendous amount of his cattle. He's moving his cattle and his herdsmen. He's investing his money in this land. And I'll tell you, the things that are gods in our life, that are false gods, that are idols, are the things where our money flows very easily towards. So if there are things where, like, of course i got to spend money on that. You know, in Bellingham, uh, there's, uh, recreation is, is certainly an idol. Where p- the thing that people look to to say, that gives me meaning. If I have a recreational life and I'm out in nature and I'm exploring, I know that my life ha- is purposeful and fulfilling. And money just flows to that. You know, REI, of course I gotta get, I gotta have the top sleeping bag or the top backpack or, you know, walking poles. I don't know what, whatever you get. Uh, of course I gotta have that. I mean, obviously this is a, a no brainer, right? Where does your money flow very easily to? You know, uh, if your kids are an idol, of course they gotta have the best stuff. I mean, they're my children. I have to give them the best, the very best. That's an indication that we're making something to idol. Where do we spend our money on? Also, what causes us anxiety? Um, I, I find that things that we begin to talk very ultimately about are the things that we're giving ultimate significance to. You know, if we say, oh, I'm, this is never going to, you know, people never do this for me. Or I'm always going to be in this situation. Or I'm never going to get that. You know, it's that kind of ultimate language. That's religious language where it's always going to be this way. That, that kind of ultimacy is saying my whole life hangs on this, on having this thing or not having it. Having this experience. Having uh, this vision, this picture of my life, right? And that creates a lot of anxiety. That's what anxiety, where anxiety is. And I think just more generally, looking at our emotional life. Our emotional life is a, is a, indicator of where the idols are in our life. You know, I, I, I know for me, um, anger, in just my uh, general uh, life and, and history, it hasn't been a big issue for me. I, I don't see myself having a temper. And then I have children, and all of a sudden there's these new feelings that I'm like, where did those come from? And, you know, obviously parenting makes you angry, and uh, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, maybe, maybe you're like, that, that's everyone. But, but, you know, I know for me, I invested a lot of my sense of meaning in who I am as a father and who, what kind of picture I have of my fa- what my family's going to be. And when that gets threatened, when, uh, you know, my children are threatening my picture, my vision of the garden of the Lord in my family, that sparks anger. That's an indicator that I'm putting a kind of ultimacy in, in my family and a, a, a vision uh, for my family. And so... You look at those things, daydreaming, your money, your emotions, and you will find your idols. And uh, let me just tell you that whatever they are, 
And whatever those idols are that you're asking for them, what you're asking from them, they will always fail you. They cannot be your God. And so um, they cannot give you what only God can. And so, you know, we're a mixture. That's what I said. And I, and I think that's something we don't always think about. But what is the kind of sinful side of me, the, the, the side that falls short? The side that falls short is our tendency to make idols out of everything and make anything, and any, anything that's not God into the center of our life. Okay? Now, what is the cure for that? <laughs> uh, you know, I... I really, I honestly, I don't think simply identifying them, you know, you go through the diagnostic and find, oh, yeah, I got 10 of them. I got 10 of these things that I'm, my emotional life is up and down about or that I'm daydreaming about or that my money goes through. I got 10 of them. Identifying them is not enough. Because <laughs> you can't just say, oh, well, I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop being an idol worshiper. I'll stop giving my life. It just doesn't work that way. There needs to be, there's, you know, replacement behavior, I guess, that you could call this. But I think Abraham gives us a little picture of what um, the opposite, turning from an idolatrous life, looks like. And it's a heart of wonder. It's the opposite of an idolatrous life, is a heart of wonder. Um, You know, I think that uh, a heart of idolatry usually makes us feel very large, you know, Lot, as he's daydreaming about him in the land with all the cattle, and he's, he's the man down there, or me, you know, picturing him playing football. Whatever daydreams or pictures those are, the garden of the Lord, we look very big in that picture. And I think that a heart of wonder, a heart that really wonders at God and his love, is a heart that sees us is on the first, uh, simultaneously as very small, and yet at the same time is very loved is that we feel very small but very loved, simultaneously, disproportionately loved. And I think that that's what you see, uh, the experience of Abraham in this passage. You know, uh, there's the, they're kind of, Abraham and Lot are kind of paralleled with this language of lift up your eyes. Uh, look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And you know, I have this picture of uh, Abraham's kind of on a mountain and he's looking out, you know, he's got a 360 panoramic view and just miles and miles and miles of vastness all the way to the horizon that makes him feel very small. Actually, we know from Romans 4 Paul says that God was actually not just promising Abraham the promised land, that little strip of land in in Palestine. He was actually promising to Abraham and his seed the whole world. So Abraham's looking north, south, east, west, all the way to the edges of this vast picture. And, um, and, you know, he's giving him a very tangible, you know, comparison of Abraham to Abraham's size to the size of God's promises for him, you know, um, when you stand and you kind of look out, you have this sense of feeling very small. There, we, I, I grew up on a hill down in Bellevue, and uh, at the top of my street, there's kind of a lookout where uh, you can stand and look out over the uh, Lake Washington and then Mercer Island and then downtown Seattle. And then down, behind downtown Seattle is the, uh, this, uh, the Olympic Mountains. It's quite spectacular. It's about 180-degree uh, view. And, you know, I spent many hours standing up there looking out at this view, and... 
there, you know, sometimes I'll look at the Columbia Tower. The Columbia Tower is, I think, 76-story tall building. You know, it looks very big when you're in downtown Seattle. But up from that view, it's just like this little micro-machine uh, in the distance. And I'll always think about, oh, there's like thousands of little people in, you know, when you're looking, it's probably 15 miles away. And there's thousands of little people, and they're in there making faxes and running around and making calls. And they're just little, teeny little gnats or something. And a little micro, uh, they're not gnats, they're humans with dignity and they're uh but they're tiny right and they're uh and i'm looking at this huge i'm looking at the mountains in the sky and they're just tiny little things and um and yet here we have god god says to abraham abraham is one of those little specks of dust and he says i want you to look at the miles and miles in every direction surrounding you and i want you to just take in the size of my love for you Take in the size, the vastness, the miles and miles, the hugeness of my love for you. And uh, you're, small, you're far smaller than you think. And yet um, there's this kind of crushing immensity that God is showing uh, Abraham. This size of love. And, and I think that's the experience of a heart of wonder. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, actually, when I was in Samoa, that... I, I, that's where I became a Christian. Um, we actually moved down to the beach. Uh, later on, out, after I got out of the jungle, I got to move down to the beach. I became a Christian down there. And, you know, almost every night there was this rock point where I would go and, and uh, sit out and, uh, at night. And, uh, you know, Samoa, the sky's much bigger in Samoa than it is here. I don't know why. It feels bigger. And there's also far less light. So uh, the stars are very vivid and they're burning and I would sit down there and I would pray at the end of the night. You know, I, I'd never been to church. I'm, I'm just learning about who God is. And God's changing my life. And I just see this huge universe. And I hear the, uh, the ocean coming in, kind of that methodical waves coming in. And the sea breeze I'm feeling on my face. And I can smell the salt water. And it's this kind of full sensory experience of the size of God and that behind all of that is the God who's invested in my little speck of a life. I'm just some stoner kid in Bellevue, and God, who, who's behind all of that, is invested in me. There's this immensity of love. And, you know, I'll tell you something. Your body, you know, you got, you got the, eyes and the eyes for seeing and your nose and your mouth and your ears, and you have nerves in every square centimeter of your body. And every square inch of your body is like a receptacle of just receiving God's glory, uh, messages of this is who God is, this is how huge he is, this is how uh, delightful and beautiful God is, this is how deep God's love is. And that's what it means to be human, is to be very small, and yet you're a receptacle of a tremendous amount of grace that you can experience and you, and, and you can taken, and, and that's what it means to be human, is to have that sense of wonder that I'm both very small, and yet God's love for me is crushingly huge. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I do think that, uh, you know, idolatry, how do I stop making things into idols, investing my life, chasing after things, thinking they're the gar garden of the Lord? The key is really to have a heart of wonder. And I think that this is really, you know, when people talk about spiritual disciplines, I think that wonder is really what spiritual disciplines are about. You know, uh, praying, reading your Bible, worshiping. These are, this is not a list of chores. You know, you're not God's family and you're his children. You have chores that you have to do. Spiritual disciplines are having 
a space, a place in your life to do what Abraham's doing. Lift up your eyes and look from the east and the west, the vastness of my love and my grace for you. You need to have space and time in your life to actually give your heart a chance to wonder at who God is. And do you have that space in your life? And, you know, I, uh, just this last week, one of the things that I'll do as a spiritual discipline, I, I walk around this neighborhood. The inner urban trail comes through the Birchwood neighborhood, and there's a, um, it leads to a, there's this park on Squalcom Parkway. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a very strange, I don't know if it's a park, but I always go there, and it has this kind of enchanting effect on me. Uh, there's a baseball field there, and then there's these kind of community gardens or plants or something. And then there's all this brush, and it's kind of wild. And then there's trails. And then there's this kind of industrial dump trucks and things. And it's just this weird mixture of things that are all crammed into this piece of land. And, and whenever I get there, I'm like, where am I? I feel like I'm in this, you know, holy place, this temple or something. And I always walk very slowly. I think some of the workers think I'm some weird guy wandering through uh, and, you know, I was sitting there, I walked on this trail, and there's this little stream and a bridge, and I was sitting there, and just this last week, I, I got a Facebook request from one of my friends from before I went to Samoa, who I hadn't talked to since then. And so I had this whole reminder of my whole life of, here, I'm just some punk kid, and... And I'm looking at this stream, and I'm like, God made this stream, and there's these plants and branches, and I'm like, God's holding together. He invented all the little veins and the leaves, and he's holding together this whole earth and stars and giant burning balls everywhere. And, and for some reason, he's, invest- he's poured himself into my life. He's cared about me and loved me. I feel simultaneously tremendously small, and yet I feel like the weight of the whole universe is this mass of God's grace that's like crushing on me. And, uh, and you know, why did, he, why did he do that? Why did he leave me like that? I, and why didn't he leave me like that? And he, he's come and given, and now I get to tell people about Jesus. That's, I have a new life of telling people about Jesus. God did that. I didn't ask him to. I didn't invite him to. I didn't go seeking him. He initiated. He came and pursued me. He did all that. I said, why is he doing that? And it's just a tremendous sense of wonder. And, you know, there's a very interesting passage in Ephesians 3 that I think is very similar to what God is telling Abraham to do here. Um, where, you know, God says to Abraham, look to the north and to the, to the south and the east and the west. And in Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why is he saying that they need strength to comprehend the, the size, the magnitude of God's love? Is because it's crushingly huge. And we're just like a little piece of dust. And yet some reason the creator behind the um, innumerable light years of the universe has invested himself in us. He's here meeting with us in this little congregation in Birchwood in Bellingham. And with each one of us, this tremendous amount of, of love. And you know what it is? You want a freedom from idolatry? You want freedom from investing your whole life in something? Give yourself space and time to reflect on the wonder and the size of that grace. And you know, I'm looking, I'm a punk kid, and for some reason God sent his own son to die on the cross to pay for all my sins. They're, they're paid for. And God's given me a new life, and he offers that same thing to us. It's free grace. And so the life that we're being called to, it's not a, a, a list of chores. 
It is a heart of wonder. And when we do that, we, we feel very small, and yet may God give us the strength to comprehend the size, the immensity, the crushing hugeness, the universe-sized love that he's shown us in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We ask that you would, uh, would help us as we pray, as we read your word, as we look at all that you have made and think what is man that you are mindful of him. As we feel very small, would you give us a taste, would you give us strength to comprehend your enormous and immense love that your eyes are upon us. Draw us near to yourself and uh, continue to teach us from your word and give us faith in the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.